other conditions. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We're back with all of today's trending news and expert analysis. I'm so happy to be joined by my contributors today. First, joining me is Shayla Lawson. She is the author of This Is Major. Welcome, Shayla. Hello, Reva. Thank you for having me. Oh, so glad you can join us. And also is KBLA's own national political affairs analyst, Dr. Nee Quartelai. He is the host also of A More Perfect Union right here on KBLA every Sunday morning. You can check him out. Hello, Dr. Quartelai. How are you? Well, Reva, nice to be with you. Congratulations on the new show. I love listening. Awesome. Always good to see you, my friend. This one is for you, Dr. Nee. Uh, your friend, Nikki Haley, says she wants to be president. <laughs> do you do you believe her or do you think this is her uh, audition for the VP spot? That's what some experts think. What's your take on Nikki Haley jumping out, throwing her hat in the ring, talking about how she wants to be the new face of the Republican Party? I, I, well, so I she 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 ain't my friend. Uh, she may be somebody's friend, but she ain't mine. But uh, she's definitely friends with Donald Trump. Listen, I think she wants to be president of the United States. I, I think uh, you know she has certainly has a resume that lends itself to her uh, being pretty competitive and running for president of the United States. But there is no way I see a Nikki Haley getting through the, the Republican primary. Uh, to be the Republican nominee for president. And so I think at the very best, she's really running to be the vice presidential hopeful uh, uh, of of potentially a Donald Trump or a Ron DeSantis. Uh, You know, I think she's positioning herself to be sort of a more moderate and more reasonable Republican, but she's having to say things right now that are absolutely unreasonable. The fact that, that she's out there running against systemic racism, running against uh, uh, diversity, equity, and, and, and inclusion, acting as if it's not real. She's running as the exceptional uh, woman of color who, uh, you know, happened to sort of, you know, scoot above the fray and not have to deal with systemic racism. Give us a break. Give us a break. She's 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 running on a fairy tale, and you know, in the current Republican Party, that just might land her on the ticket. I'm just not sure if it'll uh, land her at the top of the ticket. Yeah, it's always interesting when, you know, these exceptional minorities, right? We've seen that uh, played out lots of times. Even Tim Scott, uh, Senator Tim Scott Shaler, who we should talk about, too, because he's also a senator from South Carolina. He's on some kind of listening tour that's going to take him from South Carolina. He's going to end up in Iowa. He hasn't thrown his hat officially into the ring, but if, if... you know, when we talk about these exceptional minorities, he also has a story that puts him in the same vein as Nikki Haley. So what do you think about this moderate lane? You got Nikki Haley saying that she's the candidate in the moderate lane for the GOP. I assume that's what Tim Scott's going to say. Can't forget about Mike Pence and even Mike Pompeo. That middle moderate lane for Republicans is looking very crowded right now. It's looking very crowded, and I think the one thing we need to pay extra close attention to is what is their operational definition of moderate? Uh, Certainly in years past, uh, you know, anybody who was running uh, that out the gates, you know, essentially referring to systemic racism as a fairy tale, uh, 
uh, you know, to think that somebody like a Ron DeSantis, who has his eye on the White House, uh, you know, would be a proponent of legislation like the Stop Woke Act, uh, which, by the way, the South Carolina state legislature is considering a similar bill right now. Um, it's no coincidence that that's happening there, that Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, uh, is declaring war on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, you know, uh, she is willing to uh, be the poster child for the Republican Party to give to be their scapegoat to to have them say, you know, you know, racism's not an issue. You know, look, we just we we're, we're supporting Nikki Haley, you know, for president or vice president, and she's raising her hand and saying, sign me up. And you know what? Unfortunately, so is Senator Scott. Yeah. Well, Shayla, let me ask you, jump in here, Shayla, because you wrote a book. You've written many books, I should say. And Mike Pence just wrote a book, presumably got, you know, million, multi-million dollar advance for the book where he was willing to tell all, tell it all. It's a tell all memoir about conversations he had with Donald Trump leading up to the January 6th insurrection. But now he says it wouldn't be appropriate for him to tell what Donald Trump said to him before the congressional committee that was investigating January 6th. And now he's saying it's not even appropriate for him to show up at a grand jury, even though he's been subpoenaed. He's hiding behind, you know, this clause in the Constitution. How can you want to be president Yet you're not volunteering information that is critical to an investigation about, you know, an attempted overthrow of our government. But yet you were willing to tell it all for a book advance. Help us understand that, Shayla. I, I'm sure you've gotten a couple of those million dollars for some of those books you've written. <laughs> what I notice is a tendency to try and test the waters of what will be the future of the Republican Party. So even in writing the book, we've got a test kitchen for what kind of ideas people are actually aligning themselves with, especially post-January 6th. Because we look at Nikki Haley's record, for instance, I mean, this is also a person who during her political career removed the uh, Confederate flag uh, and spoke to the idea that because of watching her, the racism that her father suffered, um, after several very um, racially motivated events happened in her jurisdiction, that the flag needed to be banned because racism needed to be ended. And that at that stage in her career, she was very forthright with the idea that Donald Trump's politics were going to destroy the Republican Party, that right. this was entirely against what our nation stood for. And similarly to Pence, we see a person now who is trying to figure out ways to distance themselves from a person, um, a person whose platform has been based in a lot of um, racist, but also xenophobic right. and, and terroristic ideas. So I actually think that that Pence's, I, Pence's choice to use the um, the speech and debate clause, as opposed to um, uh, executive privilege. Privi exact, thank you, executive <laughs> privilege is actually very smart because the choice revolves around um, distancing his position of power at the moment that the January 6th insurrection was happening. His position at that point was his representation of the Senate. Right. Um, if he aligns himself with the idea that what he's acting under is his privilege as a vice president, then what he's saying is that there was some kind of collusion on his part. There was some kind of 
uh, conversation that was happening. And one of the things that he does within the memoir is he tries very hard to make a distinction between the role that 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 was his breaking point. That was the point in which he distinguished himself from uh, from Donald Trump. And it's a platform of bravery that he's trying to run on, that there is a way to continue to have conservative values, to appeal to the religious right, but um, maintain the integrity of the capital, to maintain the integrity and safety of all the people that were involved. Because I think another thing that he's trying to alert attention to is the fact that his life was endangered by the choices that Donald Trump made as well. So one of the things that I do applaud the Republican Party for is that right now, the choices that they're making tactically are highly intelligent because we're looking at a situation in which they are testing the waters of where we are now. Mm. They know that right now Trump is, uh, you know, Trump is under siege. He's got multiple court cases out. He, he's still running for president. I have questions about the legality of what it means for somebody who's already been convicted of tax fraud to be able to run for president. Um, if I have those questions, other conservative, well, I'm not a conservative, but I'm just saying if I have those questions, conservative politicians are going to have that, uh, conservative uh, voters are going to have those questions as well. So the question right now is really, is it a matter of Trump having the fervor of someone who is very popular mm -hmm. and, and charismatic, or is it really that Trump's policies are the policies that represent the way that the Republican Party is going? So I think what we're seeing is, is two candidates who are starting to ask those questions. So I'm really interested to see what that develops into in terms of a race. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Many people probably will find this surprising. Being convicted and even being incarcerated are not disqualifiers for running for president or being elected president. Uh, Neil, I was so surprised when I learned that. Yeah, Neil, a lot of folks find that shocking. <laughs> but the Constitution oh. has a very uh, you know short and succinct list of what qualifies and disqualifies someone for you know from the U.S. presidency and. Folks are shocked to know that Donald Trump could literally be wearing an orange jumpsuit and still be on the ballot. Uh, let's let's fast uh, forward to California now. Need big news, big news. Senator Dianne Feinstein announces today that she's not going to seek re-election in 2024. But uh, even before that announcement came out, Congressman Adam Schiff and Congresswoman Katie Porter, who made her debut appearance on KBLA uh, on uh, Arriva Martin in Real time last week they already threw their hats in the the ring does this mean that we are going to see those two go toe-to-toe -to -toe, or do you expect others now to jump into this race since senator feinstein has made it clear she's not running again yeah um well first of all hat tip to senator feinstein for over 30 years of service i'm originally from the san francisco bay area and and uh, she's been a point of pride for the Bay Area for a long time for a lot of the right reasons. And so um, I'm glad that she's finally made the decision to leave, uh, leave on her own terms, but to leave and, and pass the baton to somebody somebody else. Um, look, I think there are other folks who are going to get into this race as they should. Um, you know, in 1992, California made history by sending not one, but two women to represent mm -hmm. the Golden State in the United States Senate. And so, you know, there are a lot of folks, uh, uh, you know, progressives and even moderates that are saying, ah, you know, uh, you, you know, can, how do we how do we 
we preserve that legacy uh, of, of ce celebrating diversity and inclusion in the statewide office. Uh, and so I think you're going to see people taking a long look at, at candidates of color, uh, at women candidates. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, Katie Porter, uh, you know, has distinguished herself in the Congress, as has Adam Schiff. But don't sleep on uh, Representative Barbara Lee. Uh, representing uh, uh, a district uh, in the Oakland-Berkeley area. Uh, she's been in Congress for a long time. She has distinguished herself. And she calls attention, Ariva, to the fact that the U.S. Senate right now does not have a Black woman. Yeah. Not one in the 100 senators mm -hmm. representing the voice of Black women in, our, in the Black community uh, uh, in the United States Senate. And that's a problem because a lot of the Democrats that are sent to the United States Senate are sent there by black women and others that organize right. to get them the support they need to get them there. And so uh, it is it is uh, not a point of pride for the Democratic Party that we don't have a black woman representing us, one of the, the most consistent and strongest constituencies in the United States Senate. And so I, I expect Barbara Lee to jump in this race uh, sooner than later. And I expect uh, potentially some other Black folks to make their intentions known uh, to run for U.S. Senate in California. Yeah, you raised such a great point about not having a Black woman uh, in the U.S. Senate. And for those folks who are saying, who's that second woman who went to the Senate in 1992 from California? That's none other than our retired Senator Barbara Boxer. Uh, and I keep thinking about these years, Shayla, when we had the year of the woman. So we'd send all these women to Congress. We'd send all these women, you know, I would say all, we, you know, we sent more women than we have in the past to the U.S. Yeah. Senate. But here we are full circle. Kamala Harris, black woman in the U.S. Senate, gets elevated to the vice president, probably will never go back to the Senate, hopefully goes to the White House as the president. How do we fix this problem? Because we had uh, a black woman in North Carolina run in the last midterms. It was very, very competitive, came very close, but didn't win. So are black women, you think, discouraged from running for a U.S. Senate? Because one, it costs so much money to be competitive. And two, uh, you know, white men still seem to be the uh, order of the day when you think about the U.S. Senate. I think black women are taking stock of where their choices led to and the, the ways that they were involved in organizing and pushing Biden into office and thinking about where are the best places to concentrate our resources outside of the government, recognizing that a lot of our contributions at the end of the day um, might fall short of saving a system that right now we see is under siege. Um, when we look at moments like, what's happening with the Chinese uh, air balloons, the spy balloons, how it represents this opening that America has created, this chasm that it's created in its lack of organization, its lack of cohesion. Um, there, there's only so many things you can do to save a ship where <laughs> you keep seeing a new leak. And I think Black women are astute enough to realize that we're going to have to organize in different ways than just concentrating ourselves in the Senate. We also are doing that market research of testing and seeing. So we saw what happened when a few years ago, we pushed several dynamic, incredible women of color into legislative positions, into the Senate, you know, and, and, and where, where are we now? 
what did that get us? So I think that our quietness is really an indicator that something big and beautiful is on the horizon, that we're putting our political efforts in other, in other pockets um, and just taking stock of the fact that our, our government is, it, it needs a complete overall in order for us to start participating in ways that are more meaningful. But, but Ariva, can, can I also ahead, just shine, me, a, Absolutely. Shine, a, shine a light on the glass half full, right? You know, so yes, we need to send, you know, uh, uh, Black women to the United States Senate, perhaps a Black woman uh, from California. I think there's an opportunity to do that. Uh, but, you know, it's also important to take note of the number of Black women that this Senate uh, has appointed to the federal judiciary. And we know that the courts matter, especially while, you know, folks on the right are waging a war against diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, we're going to need a, a strong federal court system uh, to be able to, to to protect the gains that we've made. And so, you know, for our listeners, it's important that that, that we communicate some progress, uh, but we it's also that important that we communicate, you know, we, when we don't have the representation that we deserve, the representation that we've earned. Uh, and, you know, how can we call ourselves, you know, a democratic party that recognizes that our, our diversity is both our power and our strength if we don't have black women from the democratic party in the United States Senate? I, I agree with you, Nina. I think what Shayla is saying is we have limited resources. We have a finite number of things we can do. So I think we should be asking the Democratic Party, given the role that we've played, the historical role and the role that we continue to play today, what are they going to do to make it easier, to make it more conducive for black women to run and to win, to get the kind of financial support that they need, the kind of organizing support that they need in order to be successful? We lost an opportunity in North Carolina in that race to have a black woman. And I think every time we lose an opportunity like that, it sends a message to other black women that this is hard, this is difficult. And I'm not going to get the kind of support I need from the party. When we come forward, we're going to talk about the importance of a Democratic controlled Senate and the appointment of judges. We're going to also talk about some of those victims that lost their lives in this Michigan State University shooting. And what are we going to do in this country about gun control? Uh, just these mass shootings just keep happening. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580 News, Sports and Traffic up next. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time. I'm your host, Ariva Martin, and we are tracking today's trending news. And I have my contributors here helping us break down that news. And Hour two, I'm taking your call, so you can give us a call in hour two at 1-800-920-1580. You can also post a comment on YouTube. And if you haven't already done so, download the KBLA app so you can listen and watch anywhere in the world. In that next hour, we're talking about black love. Yes, it's a battle of the sexes. Today is Valentine's Day, and we want to give all of the lovers out there something to think about, uh, whether you are in a relationship, thinking about being in a relationship, or getting out of a relationship. This is one hour you do not want to miss. 
We are back, though, in this hour talking about this just horrific news of the day. Again, yesterday, three students shot at Michigan State University. The gunman then goes like so many of these gunmen do and shoots himself. And this is all happening on the eve of the fifth anniversary of the Parkland School shooting. Uh, Just so many mass shootings in this country, it's easy to become numb to them. But we shouldn't do that because these shootings involve real families. I'm back with Dr. Nee Kortala. He is the national political affairs analyst for this station, KBLA. And he hosts a show on Sunday mornings called uh, A More Perfect Union. And I'm also joined by Arthur Shayla Lawson. Nee, I got to ask ask you this. I know you have covered this on your show, these mass shootings. It just seems like, you know, one happens and we're grieving for those families in that community. And then another one happens. We, we don't get a break. But yet every time the issue of gun control, whether it's universal background checks or banning assault weapons come up for Congress, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, let's be honest, there's pushback. Uh, Biden, I think, what, uh, issued uh, an executive order today or said he's going to spend about $230 million on some safety measures. But what do we really need to do to address gun control or, or the gun problem, the gun crisis, I'll call it, that we have in this country? You're absolutely right, Ariva. We are suffering from an epidemic of gun violence that doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. The gridlock on Capitol Hill uh, does not help. Uh, you know, President Biden has pledged to do everything in his executive authority uh, to address gun violence, this epidemic of gun violence. You might remember uh, that there was a bill that was passed by Congress that, you know, uh, you know, is is a tremendous step forward. Uh, but uh, it's not nearly enough. It's not nearly enough. That was the first time any uh, gun legislation came out of Congress in like 30 years. Um, I think our greatest hope right now are in these red flag laws that we're seeing uh, on the state level. In fact, right here in Michigan, where I'm at uh, today, uh, uh, these it, during the state of the state address uh, last month, Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer had called for a number of gun reforms, uh, including uh, instituting these red flag laws that seem to be uh, uh, people seem to be optimistic. Uh, about uh, these red flag laws ability uh, to be able to stop uh, these gunmen, uh, you know, before they they create uh, uh, any havoc and certainly any loss of life. Uh, You know, the state of Michigan has not yet passed that law. Right. Mm. And so uh, this is a major call to action uh, for the Michigan state legislature to to get behind this package of of gun reform proposals that uh, Gretchen Whitmer has put forward. Uh, you know, as more details become available related to uh, to this case, uh, we'll get a sense of whether or not uh, that package of reforms or any particular reform in particular might have stopped uh, this situation from happening. But it's also another reminder, Ariva, that when we see something, say something. Uh, the, this uh, gunman, uh, Anthony McRae, uh, neighbors say he had been uh, engaged in target practice in his mm-hmm. backyard as recently as, as this summer. Uh, there are neighbors that that uh, would describe him as uh, somebody who was quiet and somewhat kept to himself. Uh, after his mother died in 2020, he was sort of uh, reclusive, and so there there might have been some signs, you know, that uh, you know that 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 there there were some issues uh, that he had. 
and, and I raise this to say that uh, this is part of the reason why these red flag laws are important. You know, if when people see something, don't just say something, but you've mm-hmm. got to report it. And in reporting it, it makes it more difficult, you know, for folks to get a hold of, of firearms, it certainly raises the threshold. Uh, and, and so uh, that's probably the greatest hope that we have in addressing this epidemic of gun violence in real time. Yeah, I just want to note that Fahima commented that uh, Nikki Haley uh, removed the Confederate flag after the murder in Mother Emanuel Church in 2015. Then she subsequently backtracked on the flag in 2019, appealing to the MAGA crowd during Trump's administration. And thank you, Fahima, for that comment, because so many Republicans we saw do that who were outraged by uh, some of the white supremacy, uh, the actions of white supremacists in the country, and then to align themselves with Donald Trump, we saw them backtrack and, and really take on the mantle of Donald Trump and, and all of the support that he gave to white supremacists. Uh, let me ask you this, Shayla. This gunman that uh, Nee just gave us some description of also apparently faced in 2019 a felony weapons charge for carrying a loaded firearm without a concealed weapons permit, but ultimately he pled to a misdemeanor. And some are saying if he had been convicted of a felony in that situation in 2019, he would have been barred from legally owning a gun. Uh, This is according to a Michigan County prosecutor. And I guess it, it, when you hear something like that, you hear prosecutors saying, look, if there had been more significant charges in 2019, he wouldn't have had access to a gun in 2023. Sometimes that just makes me feel more hopeless because not only do we need federal gun control uh, you know, legislation, then we have all of these states like Nee talked about the red flag laws, but seemingly all of these loopholes and ways that people can kind of slide through and end up in possession of a gun. What do you think about, you know, this, this whole gun control argument? Is it going to be solved by some national uh, or federal legislation, I should say, or do you think the, the solution lies with each state? We won't solve gun control until we solve our country's relationship with white supremacy. The reason why the two things are are so part and parcel is because even if the red flag laws are passed, it involves who reporting upon who, Mm -hmm. who wants, you know, who wants to make sure that the places that are under, that are under attack um, are safe. Because when we think about it, we're dealing with, a lot of black churches, Jewish churches, Muslim um, mosques. We're dealing now with institutes of higher learning at a time where the South um, is making so many um, repeals on what higher ed can do because it's looked at as a, this liberal bastion of, of, of you know, of fear. Like so, the, unless we stop the fear mongering that surrounds this idea that these places are dangerous. And we kind of pivot on the idea of who is dangerous, but it's so baked into the fabric of the constitution that we're supposed to be armed and ready for the enemy. And we live in a country in which the enemy has been targeted in places where people are often the most peaceful. Um, And I I don't know that that's something that's ever going to be solved by legislation. I think we have a better chance of solving it by community action by looking at ways to start um, alerting not just people who would uh, people who participate in red flag laws 
you know, that, that those things are possible. But what happens when we see changes in communities? What happens when we start to see, um, when we start to see, when I think about being on a campus, there's usually a moment where we notice that there's some kind of political change or shift in the air. Um, and having policies in which schools have um, better better ways of coping mm -hmm. with uh, watching national watching the national scene change. Right. So in hearing that higher ed is coming under fire, what we should start to think about is that will probably mean because of the country that we live in, mm -hmm. at some point that fear is going to result in guns being taken out somewhere else. Wow. Because we've seen it every time, you know, every time a church gets shot up, it's because there's some kind of fear mongering that's happening around the community that's targeted. And so I was, I was shocked and then I wasn't when I thought about what the repercussions of the rhetoric that's allowed to be shared are. And so that that's the thing that I can see us attacking. I can't see policy when it actually, you know, it goes against what is one of the fundamental principles of the Constitution, which is the right to bear arms. And that's not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. Professor Carol Anderson, who I'm sure both of you know of or maybe have even read, has a very uh, interesting book out about the Second Amendment and its relationship to slavery and anti-blackness in this country. A very interesting book. When we come forward, uh, I want to talk about big tech companies have decided that they don't need those big teams that monitor misinformation. How harmful is that going to be to our po body politics and to black folks when we come forward? KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back with my contributors in this hour author of This is Major, Shayla Lawson, and my KBLA colleague, national political affairs analyst and host of A More Perfect Union right here on KBLA on Sundays, Dr. Nee Quartolai. And uh, we're talking about today's trending news. And I, I see this story in the New York Times. It says female journalists who are just doing their jobs are under attack. You know, just asking hard questions sometimes make them the subject of social media vitriol. They're, they're harassed, they're threatened, their lives are threatened, you know, they're threatened with being raped and uh, literally murdered. And at the same time, we're seeing this rise in hate on social media. The big tech companies are saying, look, the economy is slowing down. Uh, the political winds are shifting. So we're dismantling our misinformation uh, teams, those teams whose job it is to try to prevent the spread of misinformation, like that the vaccine for COVID-19 was somehow harmful, uh, that, I don't know, uh, Microsoft's uh, owner was planting chips in our brains. We can think of all these conspiracy theories on the Internet. Uh, nee, what do you make of this, these big companies? And are you buying this excuse that they're dismantling these teams because of the economy or because, you know, they literally basically saying that the political uh, class isn't as interested in controlling misinformation? I think a lot of these tech companies are trying to take advantage of the fact that there are members of Congress that are behind the learning curve. Uh, and somehow, if they sort of, you know, roll things back, it's going to take a minute for Congress to sort of catch up as to what they did and uh, to hold them to account, let alone legislate, uh, in order to address it. You know, uh, for a long time, you know, you know, legislative um, challenges around uh, 
Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, right? Uh, that's essentially the liability shield that prevents uh, tech companies from being held accountable for what people publish. They've been hiding behind uh, that uh, so as not to be in the business of, of, of doing too much fact-checking uh, and uh, uh, addressing the issue related to misinformation. You know, we need Congress to lead on this. We can't leave tech companies or any company, quite frankly, to their own devices, uh, you know, to uh, patrol themselves when it comes to the misinformation and disinformation campaigns that have not let up. It's that misinformation and disinformation, you know, that, uh, you know, was the lifeblood that allowed for the insurrection to take place, you know, on Capitol Hill. Uh, and, you know, it's allowed you know, for a lot of the anti-Black and anti-LGBTQ campaigns to flourish. I mean, right now, as we sit here today, it feels like there's a war on Black history. And part of how that happens is, you know, through these disinformation and misinformation uh, campaigns out there. And, you know, journalists play a very important role in terms of, uh, you know, telling the truth, shining a light on the truth amplifying the voices of experts uh, uh, and people in the know, uh, but uh, journalists alone can't solve this problem. Uh, tech companies need to be held uh, to a higher standard and only Congress can legislate and make that happen. Interesting point, and you're right. Congress seems to be behind the eight ball and, and always playing catch up as it relates to these tech companies. I want to, uh, Ray on YouTube, post a comment. I think it's an insightful comment. He said, California may not be the place where we should look to get the next black senator. He says, Maryland, 30% black population, just elected its first black governor, Wes Moore, uh, may be the place we should target for, you know, looking for that black female senator that we were talking about a little earlier in the show. Great point, Ray. I think you're right. California has lost a huge portion of its African-American population over the last several decades. Not to say that you can't be a black candidate and, and win statewide. Kamala Harris, obviously, uh, won uh, her seat as U.S. senator statewide. So you can still win as a black candidate in the state of California. But I do think uh, states like Maryland, are ripe, and hopefully we'll see some black females uh, emerge in that state. Uh, Shayla, I do want to give you a chance to jump in on this conversation about these big tech companies. You know, we all thought the world was going to come to an end when Elon Musk bought Twitter. There was all of this talk about an exodus, particularly, you know, from black Twitter folks. Uh, what are you making of now them saying, well, you know, we don't have to have these big misinformation departments uh, one is economically, you know, not uh, good for our bottom line. Are you concerned, though, that we may go back to where we were pre-Donald Trump's election, where there was just massive misinformation, a lot of which helped to propel him into the White House? There's going to be a point where we're going to have to decide where we want to share information, how we want to disseminate information. And if we want to keep using these platforms that are owned by people who don't have our best interest um, anywhere in the forefront of theirs as the places where we share information. Because really, it is a place where we have the power. We don't have to use these platforms. When Donald Trump was removed, he moved into a different sector. You know, He found his own. And in working in big tech, one of the things that I found most shocking was the idea that um, the awareness that they have of the power of the, our voices on these platforms that um, 
in the writer that I used to get, it included the idea that Twitter was the place to go and look at what was the conversation that was happening among smart black people. Mm. So it was it was rather insidious because of the fact that they're aware that our voices matter, but we're not. Mm. So we're going to have, you know, I think the idea, for instance, that we're, we're having this conversation on a radio platform, you know, radio long term, it just shows the longevity of the platforms that we were using previously. I've turned off all my social media. I've gone back to following newspapers. I've gone back to listening to radio because that's where the real conversation is. And our IP, the use of our intellectual property is something that we really have to gonna take into consideration because we've trained our young people to put everything out there, to put all of their creative energy, to put all of their social content, content to put all of their social consciousness. They are watching, they are collecting all of this and using it against us. So it's, it's a no-win fight when we think that these are platforms that can be regulated when they're not designed to do anything other than create this confluence of information that they have about us so that they can divide us and keep us tired. So I think it's really a time to just take stock of what are the media platforms that will allow us to continue well, shout out for radio. Thank you, Shayla. <laughs> Those of us in KBLA love folks that listen to their radio. And we not only do radio here, we also stream. So if you do like your YouTube or you like your streaming sites, you can also catch all of uh, KBLA on those streaming sites as well. I, you raised such a great point about what these tech companies are really up to. And I'm not buying for one minute that they are dismantling these departments because of economic reasons or because of any reason other than they want the proliferation of uh, essentially hate speech because we know the more provocative uh, something is that's posted on social media, the more likely it is to go viral. People love train wrecks. They love, you know, the, the provocative uh, you know, content that's posted by provocateurs like Donald Trump, which is why he amassed so many followers on any social media platform, essentially, that he joined, which is why Facebook has invited him back, which is why Twitter has invited him back. They want that voice. They want that divisive voice. They want that vitriol that he spews on a daily because, unfortunately, it, it you know, it was good for business. And at the end of the Propaganda day, Propaganda is essential to their bottom line. Yeah. That will never change. Yeah. At the and end of the day, no it's all about the, the Benjamins. And if it makes them yeah. money, it makes sense, right? If it makes money, it yep. makes sense. And that's a quote from my Aunt Robbie from Sweetie Pie. So let me attribute that's it to right. her. But <laughs> Go ahead, Nee, you want to jump in? We underestimate yeah. the but at the same time, we underestimate the power of our information, that our information is also their dollar. So yes. if we take our information back, if we take back the channels in which our information is being disseminated, they lose their power. That's the only way that we can do it. It will not be the other way around. And I think we also need to hold them accountable in terms of what's in the terms and conditions of their service, right? We've got to nobody really, reads those. We've got to, but, but you know, but we've we've got to really scrutinize those. Uh, I'm talking about the organizers. I'm talking about you know folks in elected elect, in elected office. We really need to dig into those terms and conditions and make sure that we're holding companies accountable for what they say the terms and conditions of service really are. Um, and while we're at it, when it comes to their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, we're seeing a lot of companies, uh, particularly tech companies that are engaged in these mass layoffs, we're seeing that diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals are on the front lines of these, these layoffs. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I think we're seeing an erosion of espoused values, and we can't allow it to happen on our watch.
Yeah. Uh, but also your... going, but going back to those. Um, sorry, you got everybody. 10 I'm seconds. Just... Go ahead, Shayla. Go ahead. Yeah. But even when it comes to the way that the terms and conditions are, are executed, they're delineated in a way where they are protected. When you report bad conduct, that what they shoot you back is the ways that they, they don't have the ability to actually um, to execute any kind of um, censure for individuals being um, for individuals information being doxxed for infor for the ways that people um, are being harassed they will always figure out a way to like it, it's exhausting to read information right. that will never be used that's the it's just not the way to go about it it will not help us yeah I gotta have you guys back for this conversation it's very interesting and and I'm taken back to right after George Floyd's murder when those big tech companies realized that they were stealing black IP, as you said, Shayla, and using it and not attributing ownership and origination to black creators. And they threw some crumbs at a bunch of black creators, gave them these gift kind of contracts that uh, lasted uh, very short periods of time. So a big conversation, much bigger than what I have time for now. Uh, if you love radio, you know, I got to go to some news, sports and traffic and up in our next hour is going to be a conversation about black love because it is Valentine's Day. But first, I got to thank uh, Dr. Nee Kortelai for joining me, KBLA. Uh, check him out every Sunday on A More Perfect Union. He is our national political affairs analyst. And check out Shayla Lawson. She has so many books, but the one we're talking about today is This Is Major. She has a new book coming out and always great to be in conversation with these brilliant minds. Thank you so much. New sports and traffic when we come forward. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Custom blind shades and shutters at affordable prices. Our blinds are easy to install and shipping is free. Don't hire an expensive professional. Do it yourself and save big at blindster.com. Is this the tackle? This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. Ray Richardson. Of the five NFL teams looking for a head coach in the offseason, only one hired an African-American. The Houston Texans hired D'Amico Ryans. The last opening will be filled today when the Arizona Cardinals hire Philadelphia Eagles defensive coordinator Jonathan Gannon. This means the NFL made virtually no progress in addressing the lack of black head coaches. Only three of the NFL's 32 teams will have a black head coach on the sidelines next season. There is some progress in other areas. Eight teams have a black general manager. Five have a black president. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. This sports report was brought to you by Original Taco Pete. Aaron from Original Taco Pete's here, inviting you to our newest location at 3272 West Slauson off Crenshaw for Taco Tuesday. Only 175. Call 323-348-4441 to order. What we're going to do right here is go back. Go back. KBLA Talk 1580 is turning up the frequency in Black History Month. Be on the lookout for some familiar faces as the Metro K-Line is currently wrapped in KBLA Talk 1580. Make sure you visit the KBLA Talk 1580 online store now open for business with all kinds of fresh merch. Don't miss a single episode of The Motivator, Les Brown's month-long radio residency. You've got to be hungry. Weekdays at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Exclusively on KBLA Talk 1580. And afternoons just got real. Real people, real talk, real issues, real solutions. Be sure to check out Ariva Martin in real time on your way home weekday afternoons from 4 to 6. Turning up the frequency all Black History Month long. We're unapologetically progressive. KBLA Talk 1580 and we don't black down.
Three students were killed and five others are in critical condition after the shooting on the Michigan State University campus. The police said a caller's tip led them to the 43-year-old gunman who was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. We're learning more about that gunman and the fact that he had some prior charges related to possession of a gun. Consumer prices increased at an annual rate of 6.4% in January, and consumers say they are feeling it in the grocery store as Food prices in particular are up 10%, causing many consumers to have to turn to food banks because the price of food is so high. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has thrown her hat into the ring to be uh, the U.S. president in 2024. She's running in the GOP primary against her former boss, Donald Trump, and also what may be uh, the former vice president, Mike Pence. Mike Pence is in the news, not because he's announced his uh, run for president, but because he's fighting a federal grand jury subpoena. He doesn't want to go and tell a grand jury what he knows about the insurrection, what led up to the insurrection, and specifically Donald Trump's conversations to him. Now, he told a lot of that information in a memoir where he was paid millions of dollars in advance, but he thinks he should be president of the United States, but he shouldn't have to comply with a duly served federal grand jury subpoena. Hmm, figure that one out. Uh, and Senator Dianne Feinstein, California's longing-serving senator, will not run for re-election this year. Lots of folks expected to throw their hats into the ring, U.S. Congressman. Adam Schiff has already declared his run for that Senate seat, as well as U.S. Congresswoman from California, Katie Porter. Joe Biden is poised to secure a landmark 100 judges in this Democratic-led Senate. He is outpacing, at this point, Donald Trump in terms of appointing federal judges. This is critically important because we know uh, Donald Trump got three U.S. Supreme Court appointments appointments and supported uh, appointed a slew of judges to the federal judiciary many who experts say were not qualified to serve and it's valentine's day and i don't know if you bought candies or flour or you're planning a romantic dinner but 23.9 billion dollars will be spent on valentine's day this is Ariva Martin in real time. I'm your host, Ariva Martin, and this is your drive time destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. And today in real time, I'm thinking about love, and that's black love. And in case you missed it, my husband and I, Ernest, we were actually couples on the own hit show, Black Love. Yes, I had all my relatives calling me saying, is that you and Uncle Ernest on Black Love? Yes, that was us on Black Love. So uh, I've been married for a long time and nothing near and dear to my heart than talking about black love, black families, and why are black women not getting married? What's what's up with this? Only 28.5% of black women are married. Yes, only 28.5%. We're going to find out what's behind that number and more and what's motivating black women and men in relationships when we come forward with my experts tonight, Dr. Diane Stewart and Dr. Armand Perry are in the house, and we're going to be talking about love. Give us a call, 1-800-920-1580. You have a question or a comment. When we come forward, it's all about love. Right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's
Let's get back to more of Aretha Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. It's Valentine's Day and I'm at work. I don't know where you are. Maybe you are on your way to a romantic dinner. Maybe you've already gotten your flowers or you're giving flowers to someone. But I figured since I had to be at work, I would spend the hour talking about black love and black relationships. Some of these uh, statistics statistics are startling. Over the last decades, uh, we know marriage has been on a decline for all Americans. But in 2020, only 30 percent of African-Americans were married compared to 48% of all other Americans. And half or 50% of black folks have never, ever, ever been married compared to 34% of all Americans. What is behind these statistics in that earlier one that 28.5% of black women, uh, no man. Uh, What's going on with black love, black relationships, and black marriage. I have two of the nation's leading experts on black love and black relationships joining me. Dr. Diane Stewart is here. She's the author of Black Women, Black Love. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Stewart. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be back with you. Absolutely. Glad to have you back. And also joining us in this conversation is Dr. Armand Perry. He is the author of Black Love Matters, Authentic Men's Voices on Marriages and Romantic Relationships. Welcome back to you, Dr. Perry. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. I think I may have gotten uh, that stat wrong, uh, Dr. Stewart. The 28.5%, what exactly is that representative of? Black women who were not married at time of survey of the 2020 census, time of survey. For 2019, 20.8% of Black women were married, not not married, were married. Oh, were married. 25 were married. Okay. Yes. So Mm -hmm. if we do the math, that means? We're looking at 71, 72% are married. Yeah. 72 are not married. Yes. Wow, that's a huge number. So your book, I love your book, Black Women, Black Love. You talk about some of the policies that have been enacted by this, our government, the U.S. government, that are, you know, the reasons why we see so many black women who are still single today. Just give us the top one or two policies that add to the difficulty that some black women may have in finding, uh, you know, a spouse or getting married. Um, Ariva, for poor Black women in particular, um, some of those policies that I talked about that emerged in the 1960s when Black women were um, um, enrolling in welfare programs um, in large numbers, they've either been translated or transmuted, they've been changed a bit, but they're still here. So for example, Black women who might be receiving um, subsidies for Section 8 housing, they can't have a partner live with them and continue to receive that kind of um, subsidy. Um, There's so many ways that if you're poor and you need support from the government, The message to Black women, to poor women, is that you cannot have male companionship because male companionship is interpreted through a patriarchal lens, which means that that male is the patriarch who is responsible for your care, your well-being, and that of your children. And this began coming right out of slavery. 
And what has happened, and we saw this with the Moynihan report, what has happened is this government has never taken responsibility for the fact that it handicapped Black men, Black women too, but in this case, let's talk about the, the ones who are supposed to be the patriarchs. And then charge them with being patriarchs, never allowing them to really be or have access to what patriarchs are supposed to have, and then said, you're supposed to be the patriarch and you're responsible for the care of the Black women that you're either dating or married to and any children you produce. And I'm not saying that Black men should not care for children and participate in the economy of the household. In no way am I saying that. But it's the it's the actions of this government, the kind of stealthy actions of this government to create policies and laws to to absent itself from addressing a problem that began in slavery and that it has placed on the shoulders of black men and black women to to handle itself, to handle wow. themselves, so to speak. You know, I, all of us can remember back, or many of us who are listening today can remember that movie Claudine, where you know they had to run and and hide the the men's tie, the the man's socks, or any evidence that a man lived there because the worker, the social worker, uh, was coming out to do an inspection of her apartment, and if there was any evidence that there was a man that could, as you said, end any government benefits uh, that she might have been entitled to, uh, Doctor Perry. Uh, Blacks are the least married of any major racial or ethnic group. Help us understand what is behind that. Yeah, if if I could pick up where Dr. Stewart left off, I would would talk about when our economy shifted in the late 1970s from a goods producing and manufacturing economy to one that was service and technology driven. What we see in large major cities all across the country is what many demographers would call a rust belt, right? So these large urban cores that have been transformed where you had factory jobs where, again, stereotypically men with low levels of education could go and find a job with a wage to sufficient to support a family. Well, as again, as Dr. Stewart mentioned, as macroeconomic policy changed and those jobs were outsourced overseas, what we find is that low and semi-skilled men disproportionately men of color are even less likely to be able to uh, earn a wage sufficient to support a family that is uh, plays significant and negative impacts on union formation right because again if you think about it again stereotypically when uh, men and women meet one another if uh, the the man doesn't have gainful employment it significantly truncates his ability to be able to provide for a family and makes him what is known in the field as less marriageable, right? He's less attractive as a marriage mate. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, thank you for, you know, sharing that economic uh, analysis and perspective. But Dr. Stewart, do black women say, you know, that 72 percent, 71 percent that are unma- that are unmarried, do they say, look, Brother ain't got no money. I'm not interested. Or I feel like the black women that I know are saying I'm open. He doesn't have to have a great job or even make as much money as I make. I just want someone who's going to love me, take care of me, be good to me. Uh, Do you find that black women are allowing incomes and salaries to be an impediment to them hooking up with black men? I think that's happening more and more, Areva, to be honest. Oh, I think we'll, okay. we'll find a range we'll find a range of black women. I think both 
kinds of black women are out there. And with the way social media works today, anyone, you know, with their message can get out there and messages spread fast. And, you know, we're in this neoliberal economy where everything is for sale. The myth is that everyone has an equal opportunity to market their goods and love is marketable. I mean, we see it on the re reality TV shows. We, we see it everywhere. And there is a discourse out there that Black women need to look for a high status man, a man who can take care of all of the bills and manage, run the household. And if you have a, you know, a salary, it's supplementary or whatever it might be, that discourse, that ideology is gaining tremendous traction wow. among many Black women. At the same time, I do think that there are Black women out there that are looking for quality men. And oftentimes within their different socioeconomic um, um, stratas, they might want Black men that are evenly yoked with them socioeconomically. Right. But we have a long legacy of Black women um, dating Black men who do not make as much money as them. We have a long history of that. Well, I guess I just have some very progressive women American. friends who are saying they they just want a quality man. Of course, they want him to have some kind of income. I want to take a call from Fahima. She's on the line. She wants to make a comment. And I am taking your calls at 1-800-920-1580. So if you have a call, if you have a question or a comment, give us a call. Go ahead, Fahima. You're on the line. Thank you so much for taking my call. And just very briefly, I continue to hear blaming social programs for the reason why black men and black women are not together. This is not true. First of all, since the Welfare Reform Act of 1996, these programs are need-based. They're not contingent. You're not going to get any benefits if there's a man in the house. In fact, in some instances, as a social worker, I've seen situations where the men were the head of the house and they were receiving benefits. Secondly, it's mainly more educated women who may not find men that are of the same economic and educational level. But poor women are not not having, because I, I, and I also teach a class on the black family, and I'm a social worker, and I've seen poor women who've had men, no matter whether they've had a job or not. So we need to stop this narrative of social programs are keeping black men out of the house. Because after the 1996 Welfare Reform Act, there are agents, these services are available, are need-based. And there are more white people on these social programs than there are black and black. Let me, let me uh, have, thank you, first of all, for your comment, Fahima. Fahima. I want to have Dr. Uh, Perry address that because Dr. Perry is a social worker. So how do you respond to that, Dr. Perry? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for the question. I was uh, back to the, the 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 other question about women and to what extent they're willing to marry men who either are or at various ec economic levels. I grew up in the '80s, and you may remember there was a popular song, and the hook was "You got to have a job if you want to be with you, me." <laughs> there you go, because ain't nothing going on but the rent, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, I was sort of harkening back to days gone by when when you asked that question. But to address the, the caller's question. Uh, or a comment. Uh, she, if I heard correctly, she was saying that we have to stop the narrative. I think mm -hmm. it's the language that she used that suggests that social programs are at play for the circumstances that Black families find themselves in. Here's what I think is important about that. Um, any critique of Black or African American families or African American relationships, it is incomplete if you don't investigate equally as thoroughly the circumstances that have been created that shape those people's lived experiences and the circumstances surrounding their relationships, right? So in other right. words, so we, we can get on here and we can pontificate about the challenges that Black folks find themselves in, 
and we could easily identify individual folks who may or may not fit uh, to the to the caller's uh, uh, way of thinking, a specific narrative or someone who is living outside of the rules of a public assistance program and so on and so forth. Those are isolated in individual circumstances. What's important for us to recognize and understand is that if you're going to address a problem, again, you're talking to a social worker here. So what we do is interventions. Your intervention is only going to be as effective as your assessment. So you have to must first accurately assess right. the challenge before you can prescribe a solution. And, and let me and just say this, uh, Dr. Perry, Fahima, I don't think anyone is suggesting that social programs or social policy are the sole reason that black men and women are not getting married. They're just giving some context to how those policies had a uh, negative impact on relationships. And we can't deny that, that there were many programs that punished uh, people for being in relationships. That, that's just factual. So there's there's really no debate about that. I want to Fahima, hold on a second. Hold on. I want to take another call. Sandra's on the line. Sandra, what's your comment? Oh hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, actually, I wanted to agree with Fahima. Uh, I understand that those are facts, but in my you know those are also really antiquated facts. You know, social programs. You know, the women, the people who are on welfare now. That's just one percentage. Um, I know several professional people, I'm in the legal field, who choose not to be married. Some of them are just celibate and want to do it the way God wants them to do. Others just have confidence in themselves and they won't allow men to disrespect them. And a lot of black men aren't interested in the black women. So, I mean, there are other reasons besides social programs. And so oh, I no, no doubt about that. Definitely other reasons. You just hit a good point, though, Sandra, that I want to ask Dr. Perry about. And that's you just said a lot of black men aren't interested in marrying or being with black women. There's a stat out there, uh, Dr. Perry, that says black men marry white women at twice the rate that black women marry white men. So to Sandra's point. It looks like there's some legitimacy to that, that black men are marrying white women at twice the rate. What's up with that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't exactly. speak for the race of black men since you're on sure. here tonight. <laughs> sure. I, 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 for the record, I'm in the car carrier member of black men married to a black woman. So, All right. Um, Let the record yeah. reflect that. Okay. <laughs> yes, please, please do. Um, so, I mean, so he, so here's the thing. I think we live in, in, in a time, we live in a day and a time where, uh, there's much less restriction as it relates to things like interracial dating. Um, uh, we we live in a society where we see, I think, even increasingly black women expanding their options. Uh, so the most notably, you got Serena Williams, you got uh, Eve, and you got other people of note doing these types of things. And so I, here's here's what I think but is I important. But I can't let you off the hook, Dr. Perry. The, the stat says, despite those exceptions you just gave, and those are real, but black men marry white women at twice the rate that black women do. So why are black men marrying white women at a higher rate than black women are marrying white men? Here's what I think is at play there. I think that when we think about uh, Eurocentric standards of beauty, uh, what has happened is we are regularly bombarded with messages that suggest to us uh, thin women, fine hair, fair skin is the model for beauty. And that is, again, essentially a Eurocentric view of the world. And so what happens in that uh, taxonomy or that hierarchy, unfortunately, black women end up at the bottom of that. And to the extent that people buy into that or subscribe to those Eurocentric thoughts and ideas about beauty, then uh, they become less desirable in some people's eyes. We've also had discussions and conversations about these notions where 
large numbers of men are talking about having interest in what they call exotic women. And these are women who essentially have Eurocentric features. Um, again, I'm not one who subscribes to that or, or has adopted you that. You don't have but, to go get a picture of your wife. See, you, you want to get a lot of cred here for being married to a black woman. <laughs> no, no. We want to see her Afrocentric features. We want to see Mrs. Perry. <laughs> so here's the thing. If, if, if people, again, as you were mentioning, with, with marriage being what it is today, if you can find somebody who is supportive of you and loves you, you've done really, really well. Um, and for any number of reasons, many of which I was just sort of describing, alluding to as it relates to uh, the ways in which we've been bombarded with these Eurocentric views and features around beauty. I think that has a lot to do with it. I think let, it's me also stop, let me stop you. Too. Oh, I want to get uh, Dr. Oh. Stewart to jump in on this about these Eurocentric beauty standards. Dr. Stewart, in the work that you've done, have you had darker skinned black women or women with more pronounced you know, t- traditional black features say to you, hey, black men don't like me because I'm too dark or they don't like me because my nose is too broad. Do you get that? All the time. And in fact, a lot more than I ever expected as a dark skinned black woman myself in doing the work for the book. So many black women had those kinds of stories. And I was I was shocked. I, really, I'm a dark skinned black woman and I did not expect it, but it is quite prevalent to the point that I began to wonder, did this happen with the rise of like MTV, which was my generation. I was like 15 when MTV Mm -hmm. came out, all the videos and what was happening, what they were showing in terms of either racially ambiguous um, black women um, or women period. Um, And as Dr. Perry said, and just being constantly bombarded with these issues, but as my book shows, this began in slavery. I mean, let's be honest, this began in slavery and there's some other dimensions to it. One of the things that I think is so sad, while beauty and desire are really important um, for a number of people when it comes on to dating and marriage, it is the beauty is not substantive. The physical external beauty is not ultimately a substantive characteristic that um helps us um you know make marriages strong and durable and enduring but at the same time there are other issues that come with this fair complexion people with a loose curl pattern in their hair they other kinds of socioeconomic benefits social capital accrues to them and we can't deny that that is also part of the equation yeah uh Really, really good point about uh, social capital and privilege that light-skinned women and men experience in this country. We know it's proximity to whiteness, right? The more white you look, the more white your features are, the the more privilege you enjoy in this country. We're going to continue this conversation about black love with two of the nation's leading experts on black relationships when we come forward after news, sports, and traffic right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. It's Valentine's Day and on Ariva Martin in real time, we are talking about love and that's black love. I have two of the nation's leading experts on black relationships with me in this hour. Dr. Diane Stewart, she's the author of Black Women, Black Love. And Dr. Armand Perry, he's the author of Black Love Matters, Authentic Men's Voices on Marriages 
and romantic relationships. I'm also taking your call in this hour. So give us a call, 1-800-920-1580. If you have a question or a comment or post your comment on YouTube. And if you can't get enough of black love in this hour, you can tune in again tonight at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and the Areva Martin in real time show will be repeating this night and every night for the next couple of weeks right here on KBLA talk 1580. So uh, Dr. Stewart, we are talking about black women, what they want in relationships, but I just read this other statistic that says one problem is there just aren't enough black men. And I haven't done any kind of official uh, survey or poll or ran any kind of statistical analysis, but I have two daughters, both in graduate school at Columbia University, one in law school, one in business school, and they both went on trips, and they went on trips with other graduate school programs, black students at other, you know, Ivy League graduate school programs, and they sent us these photos, beautiful black women, and I'm like, where the dudes, where the men, and it was so few men. In these classes, it was shocking. The not two to one, not three to one. In one of these photos, maybe four to five to one. So here is educated, beautiful, successful black women, and they don't have many choices. How is the fact that there just aren't enough black men impacting black relationships, Dr. Stewart? Well, there are a lot of black women who are doing exactly what your daughters are doing. They are expressing their love in sisterhood. They are taking trips. They are hanging out together, going to the gym, joining different kinds of clubs and teams and sororities so that they can use their time usefully and enjoy themselves. I mean, that's an important thing. Black women need to enjoy themselves. But as I said in my book, I remember one of my friends in grad school, she was right there at Columbia University as well, um, saying, I can go an entire week and not have the substantive conversation with a Black man. And this wow. was in the 1990s. I, it, it, other than my brothers, not right, have right. one conversation. And so, was that because it, she said there weren't Black men at Columbia in the 1990s or she just wasn't meeting them? not that many around. And when she did see them, maybe she wasn't meeting them, but just not that many in her circle to be able to have those kinds of substantive conversations. Yeah, we have a couple of and calls. So Let me have you hold that thought, Dr. Sue. I'm going to take a couple of calls. The phone lines are heating up as we expected, given this topic. And at first, we're going to go to Howard in Indianapolis. Howard, you're on the air. You have a comment or a question? Howard, comment or question? Yes. Hi. Hi, Reva. Uh, hey. Happy Valentine's Day to you and Dr. Stewart. Um, I just want to say, you know, I'm going to love who's going to love me. If I feel the love, then that's who I'm going to love. If I don't, then we're going to we're going to drift apart. Um, so that commonality, in my opinion, is what makes love love. So, you Howard, know, you're saying you it doesn't matter what the race or ethnicity of the woman is. It's just who you fall in love with. Correct. I mean, correct. I mean, you can't. You can't make your heart feel something it won't, or you can't make your heart stop feeling something it does. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, so that that's just it. I mean, but this commonality, that, uh, in my opinion, it doesn't matter how much money you got or whatever. It's about how you treat a person and you live within your means. And, you know, don't do too much. Don't do too, do too little. You know, uh, that's my opinion on it. And, you know, I just feel that love is love and 
you can find love, but it might be searching a long time for it. Well, thank you, Howard, for your well, comment. Thank you, Howard, for your comment. And happy Valentine's Day to you. And we are talking about heterosexual relationships. We are not excluding uh, those folks who have same-sex partners, have same-sex marriages. Uh, that's love, too. And we support all kinds of love uh, on uh, Ariva Martin in real time. We also have Renee on the line. Renee, you are calling from Los Angeles. What's your question or comment? Oh, greetings, everyone. I just wanted to say I feel that, like, in the 80s and 90s, the whole thing kind of shifted the cultural narrative about the importance of marriage. You know, the whole single life and even shows, you know, that promoted being single. And I think uh, people start thinking more individually than we used to think collectively. And I think that's what has shaped us maybe in the last few years. So maybe the numbers aren't the same because back in the day, if a brother wasn't married by the time he was 25 or 30 or had children, people say, what's wrong with you? Mm. You know, or maybe same thing with sisters. So the cultural narrative has shifted to a more individualistic way, which is a Eurocentric way of thinking. And I think that has kind of shaped uh, how we see ourselves, that rites of passage of marriage being a part of adding to the culture or the society has shifted. And mm. I think that's part of what's going on. Thanks, Renee. That's a very interesting point. Uh, again, I'm taking your calls at 1-800-920-1580. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call or post it on our YouTube page. Dr. Perry, uh, Renee says, look, this is about a cultural shift where people are, are more about themselves. This is a vanity culture. So you don't need another person to fulfill you. But tell us what some of the benefits are of being married and why, if that is the, the shift that's happened, why we maybe should think about shifting it to someplace else. Sure. I, I think that um, there's a bio research that documents many health related benefits, uh, economic related benefits mental health related benefits to marriage. Um, if I speak specifically for men, men live longer when they're married. They earn more money when they're married. They're more actively involved in the lives of their children when they're married. So there are a lot of different reasons uh, that support optimal outcomes for families when uh, parents are married. I think I would also agree with, with the caller there that in a contemporary context, people do wait longer and longer to get married if they ever get married. And I think it is uh, for precisely the reason that she alluded to. In days gone by, people would get together in their early, maybe the mid-20s, and they would build a life together, mm -hmm. right? And that started with marriage. But now uh, what happens is people are on these sort of individual uh, journeys or, or, or uh, self-fulfillment um, crusades and what marriage now is is a culmination so individually you get yourself together whatever that means <laughs> i'll get myself together whatever that means and at the point in time when we both have our individual self together then we can meet at an altar and then we can tie the knot when things used to be we get married then we start yeah. our lives that is such a great point. I was just having a conversation with a friend, Dr. Stewart. She's 50. The guy she's dating, wants to be married to, is in his early 50s. He has not proposed. I said, girl, why don't you just ask him to marry you? And she almost bit my head off, said, absolutely positively not. Here is this powerful, super successful, well-educated, high-income earning woman, but she is still stuck in this fairy tale that we're taught as little girls that a man's supposed to come sweep you off your feet, you know, get on his knees and ask for your hand in marriage. And if he doesn't do it that way, she's willing to really forego the relationship. How is it that women can be so successful and, and so liberal and, and, you know, so progressive 
in one part of their lives, but in their romantic, you know, part of their lives, she, you know, women are still wanting that man to sweep them off their feet. And, you know, he's got to ask and he's got to do all of these quote unquote manly things or else she's ready to walk away from the relationship. The ideal begins when we're so young, right? This this kind of romantic narrative is a very, very powerful narrative. It creates desire. It creates norms of what's right and what, what uh, um, aligns with particular gender roles. And so um, many people are deeply attached to those norms. But what I think is most important is communication because that is what's gonna be important throughout the life of the marriage. So to be able to communicate about desires, about partnering and what's important and what that means to them is most important. It, there might not need to be the issue of whether he's proposing to her or not, but are you all talking about it? Right. How long have you been thinking? Are, have you discussed how you both feel about where the relationship is going and what it would mean to make a serious commitment? That kind of commu communication is much more important than the secrecy or the, I'm not going to bring it up unless he brings and it up. And the fairy tale of the man sweeping you off your feet. Uh, great point, Dr. Stewart. When we come forward, Dr. Uh, Perry, I want to ask about these 35 men that you followed. What did you learn from these 40-something-year-old men about how they're thinking about sex, marriage, and relationships? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time. I'm on KBLA Talk 1580. It's Valentine's Day, and we are talking about black love on Ariva Martin in real time. And I have two of the nation's leading experts joining me, Dr. Diane Stewart and Dr. Armand Perry. Now, Dr. Perry, I know you followed 35 black men. You know, average age was 40 or so. And you learned a lot about what they were thinking about black women, dating, relationships, sex, marriage. I was just checking out this article in Essence just a month ago or so, and it's 10 reasons that black women love dating black men. And they talk about they love black men's lips. They said they love how black men love on their mamas. They love their swagger. Uh, they love that black men understand that black women have to be strong as a survival technique. Uh, they love how black men dream. Uh, I thought this was interesting. They love that black men know our history with our hair and they know not to touch it. Uh, so I just want to know from you, that's what this writer said black women love about black men. What did the black men you studied tell you that they want black women to know about them? Yeah, but thank you. I, I would I would echo all of those sentiments. I think that that common experience is something that can certainly bind and connect people. Um, the the men in my study, what they were interested in, folks knowing is that they were not emotionally closed off and unavailable. Uh, that they were not people who rejected the idea of marriage. They were not people who were out here just looking to play the field and things of that nature. These were men who were interested in intimacy, even when that intimacy. Uh, did not revolve around uh, sexual behavior. Uh, these were men who were interested in uh, partnering with with their with their with their mates. And these again, these were all heterosexual men. So these were people who were interested in partnering with their girlfriends or wives or whatever the case may be. The men did express some egalitarian attitudes, so they were progressive in that way. There was some some um, 
some inconsistencies in some instances when it came down to decision making. They expressed some egalitarian attitudes, but still wanted to hold on to decision making power. But outside of that, uh, they were interested in things like partnership, uh, building families and building lives with their mates and with their partners and um, wanted to be vulnerable with them, but they wanted people who would not punish them for being vulnerable. Right. And, and so that was sometimes uh, scarce in terms of the circles in, that they ran in. Dr. Sue, listening to that, does that echo what the women that you have studied that, you know, that are represented in your body of work? Is that what they say, you know, about the black men they run into? Are, are those the men that they are finding on dating sites or, you know, they're getting hooked up with in terms of blind dates? Uh, because I, I don't know if, if black women would say they've met those 35 men that were in Dr. Perry's study. A lot would say that they haven't. Um, they A lot would say that they have been meeting men that are, tend to be a bit more superficial, might be more interested in physical intimacy and not as much in substantive, substantive um, engagement. Um I, I will say this, though. I do think that the question about vulnerability and men's vulnerability and how women respond to it is a fair one because um, it, there are women who say, well, I want that man to be vulnerable. And then and then we kind of don't like it. It doesn't line up with, with, with the kinds of tropes that we have uh, become comfortable with when we think about what a real man is. Um, so I would say what this conversation is telling me is something that I feel very strongly about. We need to revisit what it means to be a man and a woman. This country, which is why I started slavery, never allowed our ancestors to, to be included in the ideal manhood or ideal womanhood. We have opportunities to recreate what that means for us as Black people. Mm -hmm. And we've never fully had that conversation. Uh, let me ask you this, Dr. Stewart. Give us an example of how we would change the narrative on what it means to be a man. Give us one example of that. I think, and I, I, I critique this, and I know a lot of your callers are going to probably have problems with this, but I think the notion of the man as the head of the household which is a totally Eurocentric notion. There is no such notion in any part of Africa that I know of. This is something that was fed to us, our ancestors, after slavery, um, coming right up out of Reconstruction. And what that notion does, it, it part of that, that notion is why some of these men feel that they should have ultimate decision-making. I'm the head of the household. I'm the man. That's ultimately my decision. But what I found... Let me Are stop you, Dr. Stewart. I want to ask Dr. Perry. You know, Dr. Stewart, they don't, black men will say that's in the Bible. That's biblical, Dr. Perry. Yeah, but, but, the, but, but they're reading it incorrectly. And this is where I really can say something because I am a scholar of religion and theology. I'll break right? it down because I'm with you on that. I, I'm not for that man is the head of the household. So give me the ammunition I need, not for my husband, but for my daughters when they talk to their boyfriends because my husband gets it. <laughs> Ariva, that's what I'm writing about in Black Love too, because I realized I began it in chapter five, but readers really need more. I'm really going to take readers into that biblical world. And I'm not a biblical scholar, but I have seven years of theological training and a lot of Bible study under me, like biblical studies material under me. What we have done is we have taken the survival strategies of first century Christians 
who were surviving. They were not the majority religion. They were min a minoritized, the, the custodians of this religion were a minoritized group. They were trying to survive under empire and they were coming up with ways of living so that they could survive fit in with what empire is doing. Let's not live the way we live according to our Christian values because we're going to be found out. We're going to be discovered. We're going to be fed to the lions for, right, for entertainment. So here they are trying to struggle and survive in this situation of imperial domination. And we're taking what they were trying to do to survive that as God's word for all time. Mm. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's not what was so going on. So you're saying they're trying to survive <laughs> and that has been translated into you are the head of the household. You make all the decisions. You have the final say. All right, <laughs> uh, Dr. Perry, not because you're the head of the household or you're the head of me or Dr. Stewart, but because I'm going to let you have the last word because I'm thinking about a friend of mine who we were talking about having a party me and his wife and him and he said not at my house and I was like wait a minute dude it's her house too so how do we get brothers to realize they are not the head of the household and we, we need Dr. Stewart's book obviously and I got 10 seconds give it to me real quick because I got to have you guys back we got to continue this conversation we got to dismantle systems that have been superimposed on us by people who don't mean us well and in order for to make that work, we, both men and women, black men and women, have to agree to subscribe to that, adopt it, and not punish and sanction each other for living authentically in that. Great. And thank you for keeping it short. Thank you so much, Dr. Stewart. Thank you so much, Dr. Perry. Always a pleasure to have both of you on. Got to have you back to continue this conversation. Can't wait to get that book. Uh, so much needed in our community. We've been talking about black love. It's Valentine's Day. I wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day. You can watch this program again at 9 p.m. PST. And the next voice that you hear will be Les Brown after sports, news, and traffic right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.